So we ended with two guys, Barnabas and Peter, who are these amazing men that when Jesus is standing on their sheet of paper, they're unbelievable, right? You have Peter in Matthew 16 being asked by Jesus, hey, who do men say that I am? And they give all these wrong answers. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? He says, you're the Messiah, the son of God. Blessed are you, Simon. People didn't tell you this. God, my dad told you that. And upon that confession, I'll build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Great job. Jesus is on his piece of paper. He sees Jesus walking on the water. He's like, bid me to come to you. I want to walk on water. That looks really cool. And he gets out and walks on water. Why? Because Jesus wanted his piece of paper. Barnabas, brilliant. Acts begins with him selling everything that he had and just grabbing it up and giving it to the church. He's the guy that gets Paul involved in ministry, brings him in. Brilliant Barnabas. These are two incredible men when Jesus is on their piece of paper. But when they grab it back and try to write their own script, what happens? It gets ugly. They divide up the church. We saw that last week. They, all of a sudden, they're eating everything. They're not eating kosher food. They're hanging out. They're having a great time with Gentiles. They're not um, worried about all that stuff. And then all of a sudden, in come this crew that they worry about it. Like God likes you better if you don't eat bacon. And they come in and they're like, oh no, they're here. They're gonna not like what we're doing. So they set down their plates, left and walked over in the corner with all the kosher people. We left with that. Why? Because Jesus got off their piece of paper and they thought, you know what? When I get to heaven, I better have not eaten bacon. Jesus will really like that more. And it divided the church and it caused this problem, right? So that's where we left. And what happens now is Paul now is like, hey, I gotta remodel this thing. This, this idea that's being built up here, we, we gotta remodel it. It's not working correctly. You ever do a remodel? There's this great study I read. It was it's in from the Kelton group. They did a survey and they asked people, why are you remodeling? 69% said um, to uh, increase their space. Uh, 20% said uh, add resale value. Over 10% said, I don't know. Right? I don't know. Why are we doing this? This is stupid. Paul knows what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. So he's going to do something in these verses that's just brilliant. He's going to say, listen, we got to tear something out in order to bring in a flourishing existence for believers. And it's amazing. So let's pick it up. Verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul says two things after he talks about this problem. He says, listen, number one, your birth does not matter. It doesn't matter if you were born in the nursery and the first word you said was Jesus. And the only sin you can remember doing is on your seventh birthday, you took the biggest piece of cake and you've repented of that three or 4,000 times. I'm so bad. Doesn't matter if that was your birth or if you don't know who your dad is and you were born in a bar and you came out and knocked over a bottle of Jack Daniels and we won't say what your first word is. It doesn't matter because you get saved the same way. That's verse 15. It does not matter. Whether you're Jewish with all this pedigree or you're a pagan, it doesn't matter. Neither of it does. Okay? Well, Matt, if that's true, then why not just go visit Jack more often then? It doesn't matter, who cares? Home matters. Home matters to the kid. Read Romans chapter three, verses one and two. It says, what advantage do the Jews have then if, if, if none of that matters? And Paul just says, oh my goodness, in every way possible. See, a godly home 
It doesn't matter how you get saved, you still get saved through Jesus, but a godly home can do two massive things. Number one, it can remove a lot of obstacles for kids that they have to go through that are unnecessary. And then number two, what can happen in a home that's really healthy is parents, because they're discipling and sharing scripture, to me, it's just stacking kindling around the heart of that child that God's spirit can ignite at some time and just it's takeoff time. So there's great advantages, no doubt. But when it comes to getting saved, we get saved the same way. It's just like getting in, in shape. There's no like, hey, I can go pay $1,000 to buy a pill to get in shape. Maybe there will be at some point, but there isn't right now. You have to do the, the same thing, no matter who you are, Bill Gates or a bum on the streets. It takes the same thing to get in shape. It's like that. It's an equalizer. We all get saved the same way. So that's the first thing he says. The second thing he says is this. I did the law thing. It didn't work. It end of verse 16. By works of the law, no one will be justified. I did it 100%, Paul would say, and I failed. You know how huge that is? I think everybody should have a time in their life where they get to the end of their own righteousness and they give up. That can be maybe the second most important thing after salvation. You get to the end of your trying to make it right, trying to earn it through, hey, the next book I read or the next chapter I read or some perfect DVD or I unlock the secret that's always been there that everybody else knows and I don't or I come up with a perfect Torah for myself or tradition and then God will bless me and then everything will be perfect for me. When you finally get to the end of that idea, oh, it's so refreshing. You're set free. Paul says, it does not work. I tried it. That's not how you get God's love or acceptance, okay? So now he builds on that, verse 17. But if we endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 is a high voltage verse. You wanna memorize a verse? That one right there, brilliant. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So now he's building on this whole thing that he's been talking about. I tried the law, it failed. These guys, when they got their eyes, when Jesus wasn't on their paper anymore, look out, it goes south. So here's what he says, verse 17. And this is, if you read commentaries, it's like across the board, what's trying to be said here. Here's what I believe is being said. Okay, great. Torah doesn't work. But listen, I believed in Jesus and I still sinned. So is Jesus okay with sin? I think that's what verse 17 is saying. Okay, Paul, you're saying, okay, great. The law doesn't work, Torah doesn't work, but... I tried Jesus and I still sin. So is Jesus okay with sin? Is that what you're saying, Paul? And then he says, certainly not. It's Greek, meganomai, megano. No way, okay? It's the same accusation you get today when you explain grace to somebody and they say, if, if that's true, then why, why don't people just go with sin? If we're truly saved by God's grace and kept by his grace, then, man, people are just gonna sin. We have to give them a law. We have to tell them what to do. It's an argument that's still here today. And usually it's based on wanting to control people. And usually to me, it's based on, you actually don't trust the power of God and the power of the gospel in people's lives. Because if you really trusted those things, you would know they transform. That's what happens. That there's great power in that. It's like this really old hymn that used to be sung at the D.L. Moody, like the end of his whole 
preaching time, this hymn would be sung. It's by James Proctor. And this is how it ends. It's beautiful. It says this. Lay your deadly doing down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. I love that. That's Galatians. He's on your piece of paper. You pass the test. You get an A. You get a perfect grade. That's power. When that seed actually comes into somebody's heart, when that theology finally like penetrates the covenant of Eden and all this kind of thickness that we have, when it finally gets in you, you get changed. And it's not by rules. It's not by this. It's by this incredible gift of love that you finally comprehend and it sets you free. And there are times you may not look like Jesus, but I think we'll always, we're always supposed to look like a people who need Jesus. And that's the key. And I just need Jesus. I need him standing on my piece of paper. That's what it's supposed to look like. And so Galatians just starts just hammering this. And this is what Peter's, Paul's saying, all right? So there's that idea. And then he goes this. So you sinned, verse 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So he says, okay, so the law didn't work. You tried Jesus. You still think you're a sinner. And so then you went back to the law again. You're rebuilding what you tore down. And he's like, that's ridiculous. If it didn't work the first time, what makes you think it'll work now? Right? Isn't that the definition of insanity? Albert Einstein, you know, insanity is someone who does this thing, the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. So Paul's like, okay, so it was Torah, it was Jesus, it was back to Torah. What makes you think that's gonna help anything? Why are you expecting a different result? But how many of us do the same thing? How many of us make these promises to God that we'll do better next time? Our little Torah. So we blow it somehow, right? We sleep in too late. Um, we don't read the Bible like we want to. We wasted time on some movie or watching something. Um, our prayer stunk, whatever it is. And then we make this promise. Okay, God, from now on, I will read my Bible every morning. Guess what that's gonna make you? A transgressor. You're, gonna pray. you're not gonna do that. <laughs> you may want to, but you're not gonna. So Paul says, if I go back and I start trying to rebuild the Torah that never worked in the first place, all it's gonna do to me is make me break the new promises I make to God. I'm just gonna become more of a transgressor. And how do you feel when you break your promise to God? Are you like, man, I feel so good about that. If you're terrible, it drives you away from Jesus. You're like, oh, so it's just this vicious cycle, right? So what Paul is driving at is this. There has to be a new solution. You can't go rebuild the Torah. It didn't work the first time. It's not gonna work now. There has to be a new solution, okay? And it's not remodeling the Torah, which is what these guys did. Torah didn't work, Jesus. Okay, well, let's remodel the Torah a little bit. It's not about remodeling the Torah. So what's the solution? Verse 19, for through the law, I died. Death is the solution. You gotta torch the thing. You can't remodel it. It's unsound. It won't hold your weight. It won't do what you want. You have to put a match to it and you have to burn it up. That's what you have to do. Every believer has to learn like this lesson of living a new identity and not clinging to the old identity. It's the gospel identity that you have to learn to say, that's not who I am anymore. I torched that thing. I'm someone different now. That's not who I am anymore. That's not what makes me tick. That's not what I do anymore. That died. I torched it. And there's a new foundation of life. And so Paul does all these paradox things. He always does that, right? And it's not him trying to be dualistic, if you know what I'm saying. Or like it's either or, it's him being dialectic, like comparing the two. And there's actually, there, there's, there's, there's meaning in the middle of them. And, and so the first one is, hey, death, I died, verse 19, so I might live. I died to something so that there might be new life. 
And this is Romans 6 in summary, because that's what Romans 6 says, that you die with Christ, you're baptized with him. And the old you is, it's literally katageo or paralyzed. The old you, that old nature of you that used to control you and dominate you and dictate to you, all of a sudden now, it's paralyzed. Here's the best example I have of how that works out. Uh, My older brother, who was um, much tougher than me, I was never a fighter. I loved to wrestle around and I took wrestling and almost had to wrestle Dan Vidlack and be killed, but I like to wrestle, but I never want to be punched in the face. There's just no, I'm not, I'm not, if, if people are throwing punches, I'm like, I'm out. I don't want to be punched in the face. That just doesn't sound fun to me. My brother, like, he seemed to like being punched in the face. Not by me, but anyone else. So uh, just a different breed. So he is the oldest. We had no dad. He was dad. And he just, he, when he said something, I would try to be like, I don't want to do that. But eventually I'm doing it because he was dad brother, all right? Until, until he hurt his knee really bad in an ATV accident and was on the couch for two weeks immobilized. And at that time we finally had a TV. He's 19, I'm 17. And it, it was a TV that you had to go up and like click, 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 click. Remember those? They were awesome. So uh, before the accident, I was the remote. Change the channel. No. Car, car, car. Okay, change the channel, right? So then I'm sitting there and we're watching something. And my brother's like, hey, change the channel. And there he is. He's been there about a week. So all the compassion is wore off. I'm like, I'm tired of you, dude. Right? Just like, get leg up. He, he's like, change the channel. I'm like, and, and there was an immediate like, okay. And then I went, No. And he's like, dude, change the channel now or else. Or else what? I'm going to get you, dude. You're... Let's see it. I'm going to count to three. Count to whatever you want, man. Right? Well, I was freed from his power. He was Katageo. That's this idea. This old thing that used to dominate you and, and control you, that you were, had no power over it. In Christ now, all I can do is scream at you. All I can do is try to condemn you, but it has no power over you. It's one of those things that you have to just tell yourself, that's not who I am anymore. Dude, you're katageo. You're on the couch. You can't do anything to me. So that's what Paul's saying. I die, but I'm still alive, right? And then I'm crucified with Christ, but Christ lives in me, right? So now we have this new power source. Not only is the old you katageoed, paralyzed, but then inside of you is placed a power source that lets you be something totally, totally different. It's like this. Maybe Augustine explained it best. He was a man that before he got saved was not a good dude. Riotous, hedonistic lifestyle. Like he traveled around to be just a pagan heathen. Gets saved, life is transformed. Becomes one of the most important early church fathers. Brilliant man. And one day he's walking down the road of his hometown and he's walking down and a prostitute that he knew that he used to visit quite frequently sees him across the road. And she begins to say, Augustine, Augustine, Augustine. He's just head down walking, not listening to her. So she runs across the road, Augustine, it is I. And he looks at her and says, yes, but it is not I. And then walks right by her. That's the truth of what happens. That's not me anymore. I was crucified with Christ. I'm now living the life Christ wants for me. The true life, the real life, the strong life. And I don't do that anymore. That's what happens. And then then he says, it's not law, verse 19. It's verse 20 by faith. So he is almost introducing the next section. Chapter three and chapter four is, okay, we talked about the gospels, chapter one and two about the gospel, chapter one and two. Now we're talking about faith. That faith becomes not the Torah, not rebuilding the Torah, but faith is going to become the mechanism by which we live. So he introduces this. It's faith in Jesus, the son of God, who loves me and gave himself for me. There's the big difference between religion and Jesus. Religion is always a taker. 
It demands more, demands more, more of this, more of this, whatever it is, more prayer time, more reading. What? It just demands more. That's religion. And sometimes it's bad. I was in India for five different times. I started to notice on the side of the road, there'd be these little shrines, like in the most bizarre of spots. And so one time I asked about it, why is there that shrine there? And Billy told me, um, a God's there. They have a little idol in there. And you'd always see people stopping and they get out of their trucks and they go in there and they'd offer some money to it. I'm like, what's the deal with that? He said, well, here's what happens. When somebody has a really bad accident, a priest will run out not to help the person and immediately put up a shrine. And then he'll tell everybody that goes by, listen, there's a God here. And if you don't want this terrible accident to happen to you, you need to stop and pay a little bit of money every time you go by this. So it's just a way, it's a, I said, that is a racket. Billy said, totally. It bankrupts these poor drivers. They have barely enough money to buy gas and it, they, they just, it bankrupts them. That's what religion does. It just takes and takes and takes. And when we try to indebt God to us, we're treating him like that little shrine. And so Paul says this, I don't frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Don't frustrate God's grace. You do that by trying to earn what can only be given. You ever done that to somebody who's generous? You try to pay him back for something? Hey, he gave me a kidney. Ah, oh, you know what? I, let, let me give you 20 bucks. Dude, I gave you a kidney. Don't insult me by giving me 20 bucks, right? What, what, what kind of insult is it to God when we try to indebt him to us? And, and I think we do this in all these crazy ways. So when I first really dove back into Jesus, I got linked up with this crew in college and I loved them. They were great people, but it was a system. And it was, they attached me to somebody, which is really good. That was good. And then he just started saying, this is what you do. Get up an hour before you need to go to class. Read your Bible, pray, journal, do those things. I'm like, okay. So I started getting up an hour before, reading my Bible, journaling, praying. And then you get back together with him the next week. How did it go? Did you read your Bible and pray and journal? Yeah, I did. And if I did it, I was like, yeah, I'm awesome. But there were plenty of weeks where it wasn't awesome. And then it started becoming this to me. It started becoming a burden where I actually didn't like it. I didn't want to read my Bible. I didn't want to pray. I didn't want to journal. I was like, Ugh, all right. I know I'm gonna talk to Bill. And then Bill asked me about that. Fine, I'll read my Bible. God, are you happy with me? I, I liken it to this. It'd be like, um, it'd be like buying flowers for my wife and, and then taking them home and then giving them to my wife and my wife being, whoa, you were thinking about me and you wanted to buy me flowers. And I said, no, 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 no. I gave them to you to get you off my back so I can watch TV. How's my wife gonna feel about those flowers? She's gonna throw them at me. They're gonna end up all over the place. Why? Because she doesn't want that. So I, sometimes I think we treat God like that. Like, okay, fine. All right, God, get off my back. Let me go do my thing now. I actually think it's unhealthy. So I have a process in my spirit now that I'm constantly asking myself, what enlivens me to Jesus? What causes me to say, I want more of him, right? And it can be different, I think. I think too often we try to flatten people out, like make everybody the same. The Bible doesn't do that. It says that Abraham planted a tree and he worshiped God. I think David would have just been writing songs and singing them and doing that kind of stuff. I think Elijah would just be out in the wilderness, just wandering around, picking up things and eating them. I don't know, right? Just totally different. Paul, it's the Greek language. It's, it's Hebrew. It's making sense of the Old Testament. It's very, very biblical stuff, scriptural. John seems like a mystic. And I think God says, that's right. Do it the way you want. And here's what I think we, we, we start to fail at. So here's what I love to do. I love early mornings, 5.30, dark, cold, 
go out to my study, big glass of hot black tea, no sugar, no milk, bitter, just like me. That's what I like. Bible or something that I'm interested in, man, time flies. I love it. Totally awesome. Okay. Now here's what we tend to do though. Someone will ask me, Matt, how do we get close to God? I'll say, well, um, what do you do? And I'm almost writing them a new Torah. So, so what do you do? Well, I get up at 5.30. Okay, you're on the right track, man. Then what do you do? Well, usually I, I read my Bible a bit and, and I pray a bit. Excellent, all right, man. And then I make a, a cup of tea. Oh, dude, right on. And then I put in some milk and sugar. You do what? You heretic, God will never meet with you. Because we have a Torah in our mind that says this is the way to do it. Now, I'm not against Bible reading. Please know that. And I'm not against prayer. I think those are always ingredients that are gonna be in there. But I think there is a thing that we do to people where we try to compress them into a box. And the Bible just has examples of all these different ways. The best book I read on this is called Sacred Pathways. It's brilliant. It goes through 10 different kind of prophetic type, poet type, just goes through them, pastor type. And, and each one of them, they, they get enlivened to a different way to Jesus. And that's awesome, Right? I think it's super healthy and good. Uh, Dan Bidlack loves the Greek lexicon. Man, he just hours in the Greek lexicon. That's not everybody though. I love Eric Liddell. When he said, you know, chariots of fire guy, he was told by all the people around him, you need to go to China and be a missionary. Don't do the Olympics. That's a waste. It's vain. Don't do that. And what was his answer? God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. I love that. That's Galatians. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 31 that says, whether you eat, whether you drink, do everything to the glory of God. We so want to compartmentalize Christianity. Like I'll give God my 20 minutes in the morning and then get him off my back and I'm gonna go do my thing. That's not what God wants at all. He's like, hey, let's go. Let's run. Let's have a great day today. Let's, let's do this together. Let's partner in this thing, you and me, not a new Torah. And we'll get to the spirit-led life, chapters five and six. That's what he's after. Spirit-led, brilliant, beautiful, holistic, better, stronger, desire. We have to get rid of it, the theology of duty and get into the theology of desire. That's, that's Galatians, okay? So we'll get into faith next week. So Jesus, we thank you for this book. I pray that we're being set free by it. I need to be continually set free from the Torahs that I write for myself. And I end up making myself a transgressor. That's what I do. And I end up frustrating your grace, your just generosity to me, thinking that I can somehow pay you back. That's not what you want from us. You wanna partner. You wanna love us. You wanna walk with us. You want to disciple us. You want to engage us. You want to see us do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think for your glory. That's your heart for us. So correct us. Help us to line up with correct theology even tonight, we ask. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So I'll get to, we'll see. How does one know if their church is teaching proper doctrine? Oh my goodness. Okay, so um, 10 years ago, I had a giant list of things that I would say, I will fight you to the death over these doctrines because there was in me a thing that said doctrine actually saves you. But then I got saved from that. And now I have a tiny list at the top. And then I have a giant list at the bottom that I say, man, these things are important to me, but we don't have to necessarily agree on these to love Jesus and pursue him well and run strong this race that God has for us. And I've grown to really appreciate Presbyterians or straight Baptists 
or charismatics. People are much more charismatic. I've come to just appreciate them. Like you're doing amazing things for Jesus. I don't want to change you. Like I, I hold these things important to me, right? But they're not, they're not hills to die on anymore. So my hills to die on are small. I talked to this, I talked to Brandon, a guy right before service. And he's like, we were talking about translations. I said, the first thing I do on a new translation is I turn to Romans chapter nine, verse five, because it's a verse that's a little bit like, hmm. And I see, how do they translate that verse? Because it, to me, points to the divinity of Jesus. It says, the Messiah who is God came to save us. Now, some translations don't put it that way. So I know right away, is this a good translation or not? By the way they treat Jesus. To me, that's good doctrine. I'm going to evaluate a church that I go to or a person that I listen to by how do they treat Jesus? Is he the answer? Is he the one thing that you put on your sheet of paper? If that comes through clear, then the rest, even if I don't agree with it, I'm okay with it. Does that make sense? Okay. What is your favorite verse to defend your faith specifically against groups who would add to God's word? My favorite verse to defend my faith is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. That's number one. If you can accept that verse, nothing else is hard. Um, specifically against groups who would add to God's word. Yeah. So the proof text there is usually Revelation, but it's not really good because it's to this book specifically the book of Revelation. Uh, there's also almost a similar thing in Deuteronomy, but we have a whole bunch more books after Deuteronomy. So um, I tend to go to Hebrews chapter one that says God has spoken through his son and we have what has been spoken through his son, the gospel accounts. And then out of that flow, those that were witnesses of Jesus, the books that we have. And that's to me the canon. Uh, um, it's a hard one. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. Um, I think that's what I would do. So if you want more on that, you could look it up. What is your stance on predestination, the doctrine of election? Oh, awesome. <laughs> okay. So I, this could be a half an hour. I will try to do this very quickly. Um, God knows who's going to be saved, 100%. God knew when I was going to be saved, when I'd be saved, how I was going to be saved. God knows that. Predestined. Ephesians chapter one. No doubt about it. Um, does God double predestinate? Does he then send the rest of the people to hell? I don't believe that. So um, the doctrine of election, uh, does God elect in order to exclude? I would say No that God has sent out his message through creation, through the conscience, through scriptures, through the saints, through a missionary, through dreams, through whatever way he wants, and they're all in scripture. God sends out his message. He knows who's gonna respond and who's not gonna respond, but that message goes out to everybody and they're given an opportunity to say yes or no. If you want a great book on this, read Turning In Their Hearts, which is just brilliant before missionaries ever came somewhere with a Bible, God had already saved people in those tribes through ways that you and I cannot even imagine. It's happening today. My professor of theology, Gary Brashears, is very involved with Muslims in uh, sub-Sahara Africa. And he has these accounts of people getting saved because Jesus came to him in a dream. One of them is just this brilliant testimony he showed us of, of a guy in, in jail who um, just in the middle of jail, Jesus appeared to him in a vision, whatever it was, and his life has been transformed. So um, uh, I talked with a lady a long time yesterday, uh, yeah, Tuesday, and it was on the idea of the, the, like, who gets saved. And I said, here's who gets saved. Every person that wants to know Jesus will be saved. If you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. So I think sometimes there is an exclusion of certain things like, hey, it's saying seek there. Well, what does that mean? 
Aren't we completely depraved? Yes, we're depraved, no doubt about it. But those who seek me will find me. When they seek me with a whole heart. What are they seeking? Well, I think something gets awakened by God, no doubt. Um, we, we could do this, I could just do this forever, my goodness. Uh, so the Wesleyans believe in uh, prevenient grace. I'm, I'm mispronouncing it. Prevenient grace? Yeah, prevenient grace, which is this. Um, that there is an awakening in the heart to then um, be able to understand. The, the depraved heart gets awakened so then it can understand something, whether it's through creation or conscience or, or scripture. And I would say that that's kind of where I tend toward. The conscience gets awakened by God, no doubt, we're dead, totally. But then God awakens it in a human and allows them the opportunity to see, okay? So Acts is the perfect book for this for me. Right? We want to categorize everything. Paul gets saved. God just knocks him to the ground and says, you're getting saved, right? Calvinism. The next chapter, it's like God did this. The next chapter is this dude named Cornelius, who's a good dude who gave money, who prayed and was awesome. And what happens? God comes down and he says this, I've seen your good works. I've seen what you've been doing. Go send for Peter. He's going to tell you how to get saved. Now that's not Calvinism. What is that? And you got Lydia in chapter 16, who, begins to, who, who goes to this river and prays all the time. What, what's she doing that for? I don't know, something's happening in her. And then all of a sudden, Paul shows up and it says that God opened her heart, Wesleyanism, so that she could understand what Paul was saying and she gets saved. To me, there you have the three main ways people divide up over. I just say, God is in heaven and he does what he wants. We want to trap him in this little box, whatever our box is. And I just say, God's in heaven. He does what he wants. If he wants to save somebody, he'll do it like Paul or Cornelius, or he'll do it like Lydia. And I have no problem with that. So I'm not going to fall into one of those boxes, I guess I would say. When will I teach on Bible prophecy, Revelation? Well, I taught it three years ago, four years ago. I don't know. We'll see. I got to finish Galatians and then... We'll pick up the next book. Maybe it's Revelation. I don't know. Are we going to have a cross on the outside and in the sanctuary? If not, why? Hmm, I've heard this before. <laughs> um, it doesn't matter to me. I, there, was a, there was a cross given to me by uh, Rod Cochran that I really love. And I want to see it restored. I'm not sure where it's at. I better talk to Rod about that. And that I'd love that one somewhere. So yeah, for sure. Are we struggling financially? Yes? Can I <laughs> no, we're doing super awesome. You guys are so generous. Like, yeah. But um, we are building a building. So yeah. But no, but yes. How do you put that? <laughs> Okay, Exodus 32, 11 through 14. Why does God need a human to dissuade him from wrath on the tribe for the golden calf? Ooh. Oh. So now we're getting into like human will, um, God's will. Uh, there are texts in the Bible that are so category shaking that you have to, you, you, okay, I'll give you one. Jeremiah. Thirty-two. Verse 33, they have turned to me their back and not their face. You know what that's saying? And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Moloch though I did not command them, 
nor did it enter my mind that they should do this abomination to cause you to descend. Did you catch that? God said, you guys are sacrificing your kids to Moloch. I didn't tell you to do that. In fact, I never even thought you would do it. You gotta say, what in the world is happening there? It's one of these texts that I just have it in my mystery file. What does that mean? What does that mean? It didn't even come into my mind. I thought you knew everything because Isaiah would say you knew everything. But here he's saying, never even came to my mind that you would sin this way, that you ever do something so devastatingly cruel as killing your kids. Is it hyperbole? I mean, that's the way someone who is a strict blueprint person, which means God blueprints life, is gonna say it's hyperbole, that's what it is. Well, you start doing that to scripture, then you can hyperbole all over the place. Then is Galatians hyperbole? When he's saying, hey, you don't need a Torah, is that hyperbole? When, when do you stop? You have to be super careful about those things. And so I am a guy that is a strict literalist on scripture. I just say, that's what God said. And sometimes you have to just say, oh my goodness, what does that mean? It entered in my mind. And sit and drink a cup of tea at 5.30 in the morning and think about it. Because it's a walk of faith. And that's when it's brilliant and you have the most breakthroughs in the world. So why does God need Moses to convince him not to destroy the entire nation of Israel? Well, some people say he knew he was gonna do that. Probably true. But still, why did he use Moses to do it? I think God loves partners. God's always inviting people into partnership. Come, let's do this together. Come, let's do this together. Come, Moses, I want your heart to be so moved for these people that you're gonna say, no way, kill me with them. Oh, I love it. He moved Moses to a place where he was gonna have to be to put up with those people for 40 years. And he did it at the very beginning. So that's my personal reason why that happened, okay? So hard stuff. The, the, listen, if if don't read your Bible if you, want to be, if you don't want to be freaked out. I'll put it that way. Seriously. It's, it's the most mysterious, brilliant piece of literature ever. But it gets deeper. I've been doing this for a long time. And I'm still just like, oh my goodness, I don't have a clue. Because it's so deep. It's like, whoa. So if you don't be, want to be freaked out, read a different book. Don't read the Bible because it, it'll, it'll mess with your mind in the best way possible, in a brilliant way. When you get to heaven, which Old Testament saint would you most want to talk to? Oh my goodness. Hmm. Boy, I, I, I keep saying, yeah, that one. No, no, yeah, that one. Yeah, no, that one. Probably Jacob, because he was such a scoundrel. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> how do I know or how can I tell when or if the Holy Spirit is speaking or moving or directing me? Hmm. So... Um, you know because you'll get goosebumps and the hair on your neck will raise and you'll hear a voice from heaven saying, do this. Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, legitimately, I don't. It will never contradict scripture. It will never do something that is not within the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, meekness, temperance. You know that. Those are some filters you have. Outside of that, I constantly pray, Jesus, give me your wisdom. I just need your wisdom. I wanna live life well. Like I've said, maybe the best definition of sin in my mind is doing life wrong. I don't wanna do life wrong. And the way that we, Galatians will say it, the way that you do life right is through the spirit. So give me the spirit life. And what I found is that um, the, the few times God has really spoken to me, it, it, was, it, was, it was like a slap in the face. You know what I mean? It, I knew this is not from me. This did not come from me. That was so insightful and correct 
just like a sharp sword, just shink. Oh, that was right. Oh my goodness. And there's like a, uh, an awe that came over me where I knew that was God and I have to obey. And that doesn't happen very often. A lot of it is much less intense, much more just kind of wisdom. Lord, give me wisdom, making a mistake. Okay, I didn't do that right. Learning from that, you know, like the guardrails on Interstate 5. Okay, kind of like that. Is Chad Hansen for real? Mark, did you ask that? Oh, he is, man. I tell you what, we have the best staff I could possibly imagine. It is brilliant. I, it's like, I, when I think about them in, in our elders meeting on Tuesday morning, I just prayed for all of them. And I, and I could have kept praying. Like just when I think about each staff member, it's like, ah, 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 right? From Rachel at the front desk, like she's amazing. It's amazing. Like uh, the, the way I prayed for her, I was like, we, we inherited something. Like we're reaping in a field we did not till or sow into. Like years and years into Rachel. Chad Hans, same thing. Mark Scudstad. Just on, I, this, Sean, it's unbelievable. I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna have to leave that one because I'll be there all the time. Okay, maybe a couple more. Do you have to believe Jesus is God and not God's son for a place in eternity in heaven? Hmm. So, the divinity of Jesus is to me a die for hell. So when we go to the little pyramid in my mind now, it is Jesus, sin, scripture. And Jesus, I think is clearly presented in scripture as God. And I think you can find that actually going all the way back into the Old Testament. I think you can find it in Isaiah, just brilliantly hidden in there. In a ways that when you study Isaiah, it becomes so clear the presentation of this person, he's divine, he's God. So I would say yes. That maybe it's not right now for some people, but it will be. It'll become, no. Jesus' life is so unique and the way that he lived it, he must be God. How do you not get nervous publicly speaking? <laughs> I used to, if you know my story, I hated it. Ninth grade, English class, Mr. Hurley, I prayed for a tsunami. <laughs> Anything but going up in front of people. Can I marry your daughter? Love, Eddie. Ooh. <laughs> No, he's a kid, totally good kid. I'm so kidding. What is your thoughts on once saved, always saved? Yep. You can't unpickle a cucumber. You can't unsave a Christian. It's that simple. To me, scripture is so clear on that. There is no debate in my mind. And it boils down to the character of God. Is he the faithful one or am I the faithful one? And to me, this is one, I'll put that in that same category because now we're talking about the very character of God. Is he the one that keeps me until the end? Jude 24, to present me spotless on that day or am I the one that keep myself, right? Is he the one, the author and finisher of my faith or am I the one? Now unto him that's able to keep you. Philippians 1, 6. I am confident of this thing, that he that began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So to me, it is, if you take away that idea, you are harming the faithfulness of God, which throughout scripture, God holds up, I'm the faithful one. You can know I'm faithful every time the sun comes up. That's how Jeremiah says, that's how you can know I'm faithful. Every time you see the sunrise, you can say, oh, God's faithful. So I hope that made sense. Is there possibly a trip to Israel planned? We want to go. Yeah. 
That would be fun. I went there for three weeks. It was the most brilliant time ever. Probably because my wife was with me, but brilliant. Um, your take, who wrote Hebrews? Hmm. Uh, for a long time, I thought Paul. Now I don't think Paul. And I don't know. Paulos? I don't know. So could be Paul. I, if someone thinks it's Paul, I have no problem with that. But I don't know. The, uh, the, the, I learned a little bit of Greek. I'm not at all a Greek scholar. I took two terms of it you know, at seminary. And the Greek and Hebrews is more like Luke than anything Paul writes. So, and maybe it's enough like Luke that it's Luke, but I don't know. But it doesn't seem like a book Luke would write because Luke's like a doctor and he's a Gentile. So why would he write? It makes no sense. So I don't know. Maybe Paul, maybe channel, maybe Paul, you know. Um, you, you look at different people, different genres of time and they, they change their writing style. I don't know. To me, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, scripture is authored by God's spirit. And whatever pen he chooses to use, I don't care. So I look at the Bible, my hermeneutic on scripture and how we got it is super simple. We have exactly what God want us, wants us to have. How do you do it? Mm -hmm. Right? There's some people that say golden tablets, like, you know, people just kind of got mesmerized and they, they wrote it out and they're like, whoa, this is brilliant. I can't believe it. I wrote the Bible. Right? That's kind of one side, the very conservative side of how scripture came about. And the very liberal side is not nah, just a bunch of books that don't mean anything. I say the Bible is incarnational, just like Jesus is. It's Holy Spirit and person in partnership. And that's why their personalities come through. You read Ezekiel, man, you just say, that dude's nuts, right? You read Isaiah, you're like, that guy's amazing. You read the Psalms and they're so, they're so varied. Why? Because the personality, it's God partnering with that person. But he knew that person partnering with the Spirit would give exactly what God wants. And to me, that's what we have today. We have scripture partnering with people. And you see this in Luke, right? Luke is like, hey, I went and gathered up all this information. I interviewed people. I talked with them. And then I came up with the Bible or I came up with the book of Luke and it was exactly what God wanted. But he worked at it and he read manuscripts. There was no like golden place and in a trance. It's him working hard to figure out what this gospel was about. And he put together an order report for someone he really loved. And God said, that's exactly what I want. I'm gonna keep that for eternity. So who wrote Hebrews? Don't know. God's spirit. So Jesus, thank you. Thanks for questions. Thanks for people that care about asking good questions. And may we go from here as freed men and women, not rewriting Torahs, not rebuilding what needs to be torched, so that you are the only one on our paper. Help us in that. For those of us, Lord, whose love has grown cold for the things of you, we need your spirit to reignite in us that passion and love for you. So show us how to do that. And may we be obedient because you are our giver and our king and our savior, and our Lord, and our friend, and our hero. And we ask this in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.